So today's reading is taken from Revelation chapter 2, it's verses 1 to 29. That can be found on page 1028 in the Church Bibles. This is the ESV version. It's 1028. Revelation 2, verses 1 to 29. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that the Jew, they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Tiatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, 
but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you at Tiatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learnt what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, sorry, uh, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray together, shall we, as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you and praise you that we are here this morning because you have willed it in your sovereign control of all of history. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are the ruler of all the kings of the earth and that you have promised to be with us as we gather. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you speak and illumine our hearts to who Jesus is and what he requires of us as Lord. So please, Holy Spirit, would you give us ears to hear and to respond rightly to what Jesus says to us this morning. Amen. Well, whoever we are this morning, I don't know if you are aware that you're in a battle. A bigger battle than getting here this morning. There may have been a bit of a battle in that. Uh, more dangerous than the battle with zombies on computer games at home. Uh, more significant than those, and more significant than the battle of the bulge. Don't know how it's going this morning. New Year's resolutions. A more dangerous battle than the battle in Ukraine, or any cultural battle we might be aware of. I wonder if we picked up who the battle is with from our reading this morning. It's a battle with Satan. Each and every one of us. Most people can't even see that they're in such a battle. Most people can't see that the most courageous and victorious fighters in this battle are the people of Christ, the one who has won against Satan. Most people can't see that to conquer in this battle is more significant than the conquering of Alexander the Great or Napoleon or Churchill. Because if we conquer, we're involved in an eternal victory. We share in the victory of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if we're a Christian here this morning, it's wonderful to be reminded right at the start of the book of Revelation, isn't it? Look at 1 verse 5 with me. To him who loves us. If we're a Christian here this morning, we are loved by the King of Kings. We are freed from our sins by his blood. And he's made us a kingdom. We're already ruling. It's just a matter of time. But the great danger 
is that if we think that because we are on the winning side, because we have King Jesus, because we've been set free from our sins, the great danger is that we think if we can just be passive and just wait, then we'll win. No. The language of chapters 2 and 3 is that in order to, to be saved, each one of us must conquer. Look at me with the, I, I don't know if you saw the, the regular refrain. It's really important to see the connections between the different letters of the churches. We'll be looking at in each individual letter in our discipleship groups, but I want us this morning to see the overall pic, big picture. So verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Each one of us are to conquer if we're to be in paradise. If we don't, we won't be there. Or verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers, the one who wins, the Christian who is faithful unto death won't be hurt by the second death. In other words, won't go to hell, won't go to the lake of burning sulfur and fire. But if we don't conquer, we won't. This is the battle of salvation, of persevering to the end of our lives. Who is the battle against? It's against Satan. Uh, we're not to think of some sort of rather humorous horned beast. No, to be clear about this, we need to understand the battle that the Christians were in in the first century, which is the same battle that the whole church will be in throughout the last days. The battle with Satan and the, the broad contours of what that battle was like for Christians in the first century will help us see where the enemy is today. You see, we saw last week that the battle is really with the pagan power of Rome and its demand for people to worship the emperor. The demand of Rome was that they were to say, Caesar is Lord rather than Jesus is Lord. And if you said Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord, you would be like John, sent into exile on the island of Pat Patmos for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, or like Antipas in verse 13, killed. This wasn't some kind of masochistic death wish, though. This is just how the battle is. Now, let me paint a picture of how the pagan gods permeated society in the first century. And I hope we can start to see where the battle lies. See, a temple to a god would have a guild attached to it for business dealings and festivals. If you were not part of the temple and its worship, you couldn't be involved in their business dealings. See, being a Christian was really bad for business because you were outside the guilds. It was also bad for your health. All the temples were linked to the worship of the emperor. If you refused to be part of a temple and its worship, you'd be referred to the authorities, required to offer sacrifice to the emperor, and if you refused, executed. This had been happening for about 50 years in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, for the, the previous 50 years to where John is writing. But it was more complicated than that because you also had synagogues throughout the area. And whilst Christianity had been a Jewish sect until AD 70 when the Jewish temple was destroyed, now it was very clear to Jews and Christians that they were separate. 
There was antipathy from the Jews towards Christians. And John is writing about 25 years after the destruction of the temple. And we know from both the book of Acts and from history outside the Bible that there was increasing betrayal of Christians by Jews. You see, if you were a Jew, you were a legal religion. You could refuse to offer sacrifices to the emperor. You were religio illicitas. But if you were a Christian, you were illegal. You had to offer sacrifices. So what was a great way out if you wanted to uh, avoid persecution and get on with your career and get on with business? You just claimed to be Jewish if you're a Christian. But the Jews would say, no, Christians are nothing to do with us anymore. So you had this collusion, the same kind of collusion that you had for Jesus' execution. The Roman and the pagan authorities colluding with the corrupt religious leaders of the day to betray Jesus to death. That was happening to Christians. So that's the context. That's the battle. A battle with paganism and worldly religion. How were they, how, how are we to fight? First point. This is how we fight. If you think you're in a battle, you need to listen to this. Get, let, let's just be refreshed in how we fight. Listen to the written words of Jesus Christ. The words of the Spirit. Listen to the written words of Jesus Christ. The words of the Spirit. See, who speaks as we read these words? Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Jesus says to John, write. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's Jesus who is commanding John to write. Verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Do we realize that we've just read or heard the words of the heavenly Lord Jesus Christ speaking to you and me this morning? Is that what we think is going on when we read the Bible? Jesus is speaking to us. And the greater the power, the more we are to listen. He's the one who died and came to life. The one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. You have just heard him speak to you from heaven. I have. The greater the power, the more we are to listen. I don't know if you're into The Apprentice. I'm, I'm fine. It's getting a bit tired, I think. Yeah, the, the show The Apprentice, it, it gets a bit sort of toe-curlingly painful to watch, doesn't it? But one thing nobody's in doubt is that when Alan Sugar says, be quiet and listen in the boardroom, they better shut up and listen. Or they're far more likely to be fired. The greater the power, the more you listen. Can we see how powerful Jesus Christ is? Do we listen to the Bible recognizing his power. We're listening to one who is infinite in power, of eternal significance to us in our battle. It's not the opportunity of a lifetime, is it? It's the opportunity that determines our lifetime for eternity. These are weighty words like no other book. And it's so easy for our hearts to drift from this, isn't it? 
The reading's a bit long this morning. Oh, I didn't follow that. Let not the enemy of your soul stop you listening to Jesus in these written words. Now, I've never had any military training, as I'm sure you can work out. But talking to those who have, I know that it is not all blowing things up uh, and working on fitness. I know that it's not all target practice. There are hours in the classroom, exams, military strategy, weapons knowledge. I mean, you don't want things to blow up at the wrong time. If we're involved in a battle of eternal significance, are we expecting it to be won through a few minutes each week? Now, don't worry, I'm not planning on preaching for three hours this morning or preaching through till midnight like the Apostle Paul did and people were dropping out of windows. They were so tired. No, we're not planning that. But we've just got to be careful, don't we, that in parts of the world where the church is under fire literally, that to, to meet and hear something for three hours would be a joy to them. Parts of Nigeria where the church is growing, should we be wedded to the traditions of the last hundred years where a 10 minute sermon or a 20 to 25 minute sermon is what will train us for the battle? Are we winning the battle? Is the church winning the battle? Or our children, and it's great that our children are taught for half, three quarters of an hour each week. Will that equip them to fight today? Something we need to think about as a church. Do we need more rigorous training? How are we equipped for the fight? Listening to the written words of Jesus. We must not think that the traditions of peacetime will equip us for war. We're far more in a battle now than the church has ever been in the West. We're more in a battle now than we've been in for 500 years. Some will say, well, this is too academic, it's too intellectual. We need to listen to the Spirit. That's what we really need to do. And there's some churches that go down the line of saying, well, we'll just put the Bible on one side. Now let's listen to the Spirit. Is that right? It's what the Church of England has believed for the last hundred years. It's what some churches in Colchester believe. What does Jesus say? The risen Lord Jesus, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The written words of Jesus from heaven, recorded by the apostles John and all the apostles. I think this applies to the whole New Testament, and you can ask me why I think that that is the case afterwards. That is what the Spirit is saying today. The Spirit speaks through the human written words of the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul so that when we hear those words, we are hearing the words of the Spirit. So listen to the written words of Jesus Christ, the words of the Spirit. And as Jesus reveals this to John, he he says uh, repeatedly, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's not expecting everyone to hear. He's not expecting everyone to win the battle. 
is what he says in all the parables. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But he knows some will be judged. May that be none of us. May each and every one of us here take the words of the Bible seriously enough to win this battle because each one of us has to conquer ourselves. See, Jesus Christ speaks through his written word. The Holy Spirit speaks through his word. And we need to listen if we're going to conquer. Secondly, Jesus Christ knows us and commands faithful action to conquer. You see, each letter to each church, Jesus speaks of what he knows. He knows you and me. He knows what Cornerstone Church, Colchester, every church in the whole world, he knows what we're like. So he says to the church in Ephesus, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. Jesus knows the good in Ephesus. They, they work hard. They keep going. They, they test false apostles. They've got some doctrinal knowledge, but they're about to stop being a church. Why? Verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus is not talking about Western ideas of love. He's talking about Bible ideas of love, which leads to action. And the, the commentators uh, understand this to be about love, which is sufficient to be public, to, to suffer the cost of being a Christian. It's not the love between Christians that can go on secretly behind closed doors. No, this is the love that the Ephesian church had at first. And unless the Ephesian church regains that, unless it repents, what will happen? I will come to you, verse 5, and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You'll stop being a church, Ephesus, unless you are loving me, Jesus says, sufficient to be public about following me. This can creep up on us, can't it? It creeps up on me. You know, once we were bold about our faith, we're willing to be more outspoken. Maybe not always wisely so. Ask my parents. They will tell you I wasn't very wise when I came back from university telling everybody that they were going to hell. But I wish in some respects I had that boldness still. Is my love for Jesus growing cold I, I tell myself I'm, I'm more wise now. I, I'm more cautious. I, I don't want to put people off. But is it because I love comfort more than Jesus? Or I love being accepted by people more than Jesus that I don't speak up? If not says John, says Jesus through John, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Love for Jesus is so important. A love for Jesus above all things. Will we repent and act? See, Jesus Christ knows us and commands faithful action to conquer. It's not that as we've been looking in the book of Romans, it's not that we're not saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It always leads on to the action, that le the, the fruit of repentance which leads to conquering, which leads to that public, faithful love for Jesus. 
He says the same thing to Smyrna, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There, there you have the enemy within worldly religion, uh, the Jews who betray Christians to death. Jesus is pleased with what they're suffering. He knows what they're going through. He knows what we are going through, each and every one of us. And so he says, verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You see, this is a salvation issue. Crown of life is a picture of final, eternal salvation. And we might say, but, but I thought, John, I thought salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone. Does, doesn't that mean... It doesn't matter whether we're faithful or not. Surely if we're saved by grace, by the love of God, he, he doesn't mind, does he, if we're not faithful? We may struggle to put salvation by grace alone with these warnings, but we, we're, we're not to interpret one part of the Bible in such a way that it denies another. No, those saved by grace alone persevere faithfully to the end. And that is a battle. It's a battle, is it not? Those saved by grace alone persevere to the end, whatever the challenge. Remember the reformers of the 16th century, particularly Archbishop Cranmer, you might say the father of Anglicanism, the father of the prayer book. Yes, he spoke and wrote with erudition. Is that what won the day? He was faithful to death, burnt at the stake, commemorated at the end of Broad Street in Oxford. If you ever go to Oxford, visit it. Of course, there were ups and downs in his life on the way, but he was faithful, publicly faithful to death. We've got the same thing in Pergamum. Jesus is saying, look, I know what you're going through. I know what you face. I, I know everything about the battle, but I've got something against you and you need to repent of it. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. See who the battle is against. It's not just against people. It's against the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. If we, if we think that we're up against human power, we, we will underestimate the enemy. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. See, Jesus is clear that the battle is against Satan. It's against the devil. It's against spiritual evil. And the only way to fight is suffering, tribulation, death. It, it's such a vital antidote to the pragmatism that is deeply influencing Bible-believing Christians today. And in Pergamon, we come across the Nicolaitans again, Nicolaitans again. They were influencing the church as they had been in Ephesus. Ephesus could see it, but there seems in Pergamum, they couldn't. Look at verse 14. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. This is what was being taught the people of God. It's okay to worship a pagan god in public and practice your Christianity in private. It doesn't matter if you're sexually immoral. immoral. That, that's okay as a Christian. What's not being taught here is the questions of conscience that the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 8-10. to Now what's being spoken of here is 
that spiritual battle with Satan, being lured into idolatry, thinking that somehow you can have a public idolatrous face and a private Christian practice that somehow Christians can be involved in sexual immorality without needing to repent. That you can go along to the idol temple and, and the festivals, uh, the orgies in, in honor of the God Bacchus because it was good for business. No. Jesus warns of his judgment, verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. See, the judgment is contrasted with that that the, the faithful receive for repenting and conquering. The, the, re the repentant will be treated with the privileges of priests. They'll be given some of the hidden manna that only the priests were given or saw. They'll be given a white stone with a new name on it, a treasured possession of Yahweh, like the priest wore before Yahweh, the heart of the priest. This is not just the judgment of present fruitlessness, although it does include that. It is the judgment of not being in paradise, of suffering the second death, of not ruling with Jesus in the age to come, of not enjoying the closest of relationships with Jesus that he's won for us. You see, the perspective of Revelation is these things have all begun now and when warned not to jeopardize them by unfaithfulness. See, Jesus Christ knows us and commands us to be faithful to conquer. It's not optional. Oh, I'd love if it was. Oh, I'd love it if I, you know, to speak personally, I didn't have to stand up in that school. And I didn't have to go to the bishop and tell him, call him to repent. I'd love it if I didn't have to fight like that. But unfortunately, we're in a situation where we have to be faithful. And there's people in the church saying, don't worry, you don't have to be faithful publicly. You can just be faithful privately. No, that is not faithfulness, according to Jesus. He knows every situation we're in. And he doesn't shy away from saying, oh, you'll be tested, you'll suffer, you'll be killed. But conquer, you've already conquered in me, so don't be afraid. Jesus knows every situation we're in. He knows the situation of every individual. He knows the hard work of running Cornerstone Church Colchester. He knows the challenges and taste tests each of us are facing. But he addresses us together as a church. And he commands us, unless we're facing martyrdom, things we need to repent of, and there's things we need to do in public. Now, in one sense, each of the, the letters are specific to churches. In another, they're for every church, including our church. Jesus is commanding faithful action from each of us to conquer, and that action is public and costly. Do we face increasing legal powers that are used or could increasingly be used against us for confessing publicly who Jesus is and what he teaches? Could these legal powers be used to exclude us, to end careers, even to imprison us? What do you think the answer is? That is where the spiritual battle is. It's not some invisible battle out there in prayer warriorship, if that's a word, that never costs us anything. That's not spiritual battle. How did Jesus win against Satan? By being nailed to a cross 
That's how he cast him out. If the eternal son of God won that way, do we think we've got a more powerful way of doing it? Many of us here are on the front line or have been in the front line. We must, we must not think that we are fighting mere human beings. Expect a seducing darkness like Frodo and the ring. Yes, we want to tear down every argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Yes, we want to organize and plan and spend money and market, and we want to have buildings we can meet in. But is that how we win the spiritual battle? No. To put our hope in those things is spiritual defeat, and unfortunately it's the way in which many even Bible-believing Christians are fighting, inverted commas, in the Church of England. Keep your heads down. Keep preaching the gospel. Don't speak out publicly on the issue. Don't get us into trouble. Oh, we must pray for them. But how did the early church grow? Because Christians died for their faith. How did the reformers succeed in winning England? By being burnt at the stake. How did the Puritans establish parliamentary democracy? Because people were faithful to death. How did they bring in nonconformity? Those of us who are nonconformists, they went to prison. In Bunyan's case, for 12 years. How did Wesley and Whitfield win England, establish Methodism? They did what was illegal. They didn't preach in the open air because they organized it. They preached in the open air because they were shut out of the church buildings. You see, spiritual war, spiritual victory is not waged by money or organization or communication, good and right. These are, we conquer by public faithfulness, which always brings suffering as it did Jesus, as it did the early church. See, repentance leads to action, leads to cost, but it's not a masochistic thing is it it's not like say oh come on come and persecute me we're not sort of trying to uh, be foolish and, and bring suffering upon ourselves but we need to be prepared for it again just sharing from our example we were prepared to leave the church of england when we entered the church of england because we knew what it was like I remember going to the uh, Southwark Diocesan Conference uh, at which the, the keynote speaker was Bishop Spong of America. Probably some of you would have heard of him. This was 1993, 30 years ago. He advocated rewriting the Bible so that it wasn't patriarchal and homophobic. He got a standing ovation from some of my friends who had been on Bible teaching Christian camp the year before. If we think that we are up against a mere human power, we've underestimated the enemy. See, what has happened in the Church of England, as I'm sure many of us are aware, those advocating same-sex marriage, like the Bishop of Oxford, were once Bible-believing Christians. Would have said they believed what we believe. We're not up against flesh and blood. We're up against Satan. And whilst the command for each of us is individual, the one who overcomes, the action is to be taken together. It's why Jesus writes to every individual church. You might be thinking, oh, but I'm, 
how can I win this battle? Oh, I know that I need to conquer. I, know I need to be faithful in public. That will have massive implications for me. How can I do this? Well, thankfully, it's done together, isn't it? It's the church that deals with the Nicolaitans. It's the church in Pergamon that's to, uh, to deal with Balaam. It's the, the church in Thyatira that's to deal with Jezebel. These are all images, Old Testament images, which picture to us the, the same thing. The temptation to live for worldly power, Roman idolatrous power, commit idolatry to keep your job, and sexual immorality. Are they, are they around today still, do you reckon? And the final thing, just uh, we're not going to go into Thyatira uh, in great detail, but Jesus commands intolerance. It's so difficult for us as Christians to get our heads around this because we want to forgive one another as we have been forgiven. We want to love one another as we have been loved. But then there's situations in church life where Jesus says, don't forgive, don't tolerate. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Literally, I have this against you, that you forgive. It's the same word as forgive. We're not to forgive, we're not to tolerate those within the church, thankfully not this church, who seduce Christians into unfaithfulness. And Jesus says he's going to judge her. Verse 21, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. I think that's spiritual. And you hold fast to what you have until I come. So we're to fight together. We're in a battle. Do we realize that? We must each individually overcome. But we're to fight together. And that means... There are circumstances in which we're not to be tolerant. We're not to forgive. Which is just to recognize that we're in a battle, really, isn't it? I mean, whoever heard of somebody being in a battle and thinking that there's no enemy? Being in a battle and thinking that there's no training that we need to receive, no, no persons to conquer, no enemy to defeat. See, we cannot be tolerant of false teaching. We cannot be tolerant because Jesus wasn't and isn't. And he will judge those who tolerate it. We must be praying for our brothers and sisters in the Church of England and what they're going through. Because the danger is not that they don't recognize false teaching. But they tolerate it when Jesus doesn't. Let's just pray together. I've gone on long enough. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you are straight with us, that you are clear with your church throughout all of history that we're in a battle and that battle is not against flesh and blood but against Satan and the way that he works through people. Lord, please help us to fight. Help us to fight together. Help us to encourage each other in the fight. Help us to encourage each other to hear your commands and to act in line with your command to be faithful publicly, to love you beyond our own lives, beyond our careers, beyond our families, before our marriage, beyond our marriages, beyond everything. Lord Jesus, please help us.
we confess that we struggle so much to be faithful. Would you strengthen us by your spirit that we might be those who conquer and see you face to face, rule with you, and are not hurt by the second death.